Moments Podcast. Oh, there's a dog. There's a doggy. My name's Kristen. And my name's Disgusty Face. Well, if that's what you want to identify as, you do you, do you boo-boo. I'm Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> you are not Disgusty Face. What are we talking about? <laughs> Tell the people. Tell the people. We're going to talk about the Mariana or Mariana's Trench today. Don't bite me! (laughs) Oh my god. He just bit me. He's a puppy. um, They're both referenced in all the research I did, so I don't know. Mariana or Mariana's. I apologize for my voice. I've been dealing with a cold for the last nine days now, it feels like. Yeah. Literally. So, if I'm a little breathy, a little... <laughs> a little breathy. A little breathy, a little nasally, that's why. It's all good. So, yeah. The listeners don't mind. I don't think so. Right, listener? Right, listeners. Right. Yeah. Also, if you haven't, go check out our merch. It's still up. Oh, yeah. Link's in the bio of our Instagram. It's, at Starman's Podcast. At Starman's Podcast. It's pretty sweet. It is pretty Get sick. a sticker. The stickers are fucking sick. Sucking suck mint. Fucking mint. Sucking mint. <laughs> yep. Sucking mint. Literally sucking mints. Sucking star mints. Holy shit. It was totally by accident. You got way too excited. <laughs> Holy shit. Holy shit. All right. So, any other business? No, 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 no. No, I'm ready to uh, dive in. <laughs> I wish everyone could see your freaking face, your <laughs> disgusty face. <laughs> so fucking mean. I didn't. Okay, okay, you said it. <sighs> Tony, you don't have a disgusty face. Anyways, all right, the Mariana Trench. It is the deepest and most undiscovered part of the ocean, and actually, technically, the world. I think I have a fun fact about it. Please tell me. Is it, isn't it larger in depth than it is our atmosphere? Like, it's deeper than our... No, there's a different comparison I'll tell you later. Okay. It's, it's a, Something like it's that. It's an annoying comparison. That would be, I would be very curious, though, about the comparison to the distance to the atmosphere. Okay. But I can give you <laughs> measurements and maybe you can Google it while we're talking about it, so... Cool, cool, cool. So, to- in total, we've actually only discovered and explored, and that's including floating by and looking at less than 20% of our ocean. Oh, yes. That makes sense. What was the face for? I thought you were going to say of the Marianas Trench. Right. And I was like, 20% of the Marianas Oh, we probably have done less than 20% of the Marianas Trench. We've probably done like 1%. We've really? only dropped down in two spots. Is- okay, Jesus. So, it's crazy. Maybe a little bit more. Maybe Well, human... Right. Human-wise, mechanical robot, maybe more right. than 1%. Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, I guess. Okay, sorry. I was thinking humans. No, no, So, in compare, uh, they, well, when I was doing a lot of research, they tried to compare, like, the depth and the changes of Mariana's Trench to space, and that's a very difficult comparison. I'm like, I'm not even going to go into that because you just can't. Right. How do you compare, like, a finite structure like space I'm sorry, a finite structure like the ocean right. to an infinite structure like space. You just can't. So anyone who tries to compare, fuck off. Right. Um, so because in comparison, a lot of people say we have explored more of space than we have of the ocean. 
Yeah, I that have is heard a that. That's bullshit. Dumb fucking analogy. Right. No, thank you. Maybe very debatable. Maybe planets in our solar system we may know right. more about. I would rather if you said the solar system. Sure, right. I bet we've d- explored more of our solar system than we have the ocean. Right. But to space itself, right. we know no. more about space than the ocean. No. No, we don't. No, we don't. Go watch the, la- the go watch the last episode we just posted on right. time dilation. Get back to me on that. Right, and tell me how much about <laughs> space we <we've>, yeah. Right. <laughs> so we'll be talking essentially about the foundations of the Mariana Trench, who discovered it, and what we know about it, and also potential life at the bottom, um, and around Ooh, it on the sides. That's so. what I'm most interested in, honestly. Yeah. All right, so let's <sighs> dive in. The Mariana Trench again is the deepest part of the ocean. It is located in the Western Pacific Ocean, about 124 miles east of the Mariana Islands, and it's north of Guam, if you've ever been. Yes, I've been. <clears throat> no, I haven't. Doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> Though most think it's actually like a straight, deep rift, which, which you envision a trench. It's actually a crescent-shaped moon. Oh. It's a half moon. It was... A parabola of sorts. Sure. Or I guess, what do we call it? Concave parabola. Sure. It was formed when the western side of the Pacific tectonic plate had a severe convergent collision with the smaller Mariana plate, creating this massive subduction zone. Subduction. If you want to learn more about tectonic plates, go back and listen to Mount St. Helens. I go wicked in depth on that. So the convergent, basically when things collide and one goes under and you create a subduction zone, drags a lot of shit down with it. So... Yeah. That's all I'm going to give you. But again, go back, listen to that episode if you want to listen to tectonic plate activity. It's pretty cool. The western edge of the Pacific Plate, which I thought was really interesting, has some of the oldest oceanic crust on Earth, predicted to be up to 170 million years old. Sheesh. Pretty sweet. So the trench itself is 1,554 miles or 2,500 kilometers long. Long. Okay, holy shit. 44 miles or 70 kilometers wide. And it has an astonishing depth at 36,201 feet or 11,034 meters. Okay, well, I, can, I don't even have to Google that because you already know 36,000 feet is the cruising altitude of a Boeing 747. No, lower than that. 757. It's 30,000 feet. It's probably it's probably pretty close then, the depth. I, I don't know how... So, when we talked about Flight 571, their cru- right. high upper cruising altitude is 28,000 feet. Right. But Whatever one you plane. referenced, you said it was 30,000 feet, whether it's a 747 or not. Really? This one was just below, I, I think. I thought it was 35,000. Maybe? For like a big plane. Anyway. Google it. I'll Google it. Google it. So, it's roughly seven miles deep. Um, if we were to place Mount Everest inside, the peak would still be 7,000 feet below sea level. So we'd have seven more thousand feet from the tip of the top of Everest to that. It is bigger than our atmosphere. Is it? Our atmosphere only stretches 6,200 miles. Wait, 60 meters, you mean? 60, what, miles? Did you say miles or meters? This is seven miles. It's seven miles deep. It's not 7,000 miles deep. Oh. Okay, then we're, it's way off. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's only seven miles deep. I I was misunderstood. <laughs> yes, very much. How big is our atmosphere from, or the, the start of our atmosphere is what I'd like to know. So four to 12 miles from us here on Earth. <laughs> yeah. Fuck, that's, yeah, that's right <laughs> there. That's literally right there, dude. You could walk that easily. 
Sheesh, sheesh. Okay. <laughs> Located at the southern end, a small slot-shaped valley is the deepest point in the trench and probably the most famous everybody knows, the Challenger Deep. Mm-hmm. The U.S. actually has jurisdiction over the Mariana Trench. In order for a country to have jurisdiction, it has to be within 200 nautical miles from the coastline. And because the Mariana Islands are part of Guam, and um, essentially it's U.S. territory, so it's ours. Guam is U.S. territory? Correct. (laughs) Didn't know that. For those who didn't know, a nautical mile is the distance traveled through water using latitude and longitudinal coordinates. It is slightly longer than a typical mile equating 1.1508 land miles in comparison, so just slightly longer. Right. The Mariana Trench is extremely difficult to map due to its depth and lack of technology. There was a second deep hole discovered in 1997, measured twice, two different readings, at 34,911 feet and 35,463 feet. Jesus. Which is, and it's slightly east of the Challenger Deep in the trench itself. Oh, it's still in the trench. It's in the trench. Yes, oh, okay. I'm sorry. Another landmark within the trench. Gotcha. I thought you meant like on Earth. I was like, where is that? Originally, it was called the HMRG Deep, the Hawaii Mapping Research Group, the ones who essentially discovered it. But then it was renamed the Serena, or yeah, the Serena Deep. Hmm. Serena? Serena? S-I-R-E-N-A? Serena. Hmm. Though modernized oceanography started roughly in 1872, the first attempted discovery of the trench was in 1875 by the British ship HMS Challenger. This four-year expedition was organized to gather data including ocean temperatures, seawater chemistry, the currents, geology of the seafloor, and essentially life. The HMS Challenger is a Navy corvette or a small warship that was converted to study these things. It included expansive laboratories, microscopes, and tons of science-related equipment for its expeditions. The first expedition of the trench was led by British naturalist John Murray and Scottish naturalist Charles Wyville Thompson. Thompson had already um, dredged some undiscovered creatures in the North Atlantic, thus sparring essentially the world to really start investigating the ocean. So he's the first guy who like took samples from the deep pulled them up and was like, holy shit, there's all this life. We right. need to keep going. So Right, yeah, because we we're like, oh, no sunlight, no, you know, it's deep. It's probably just a dark, barren wasteland down there. Right. With nothing going on. Literally. They thought, but they're very wrong. Very wrong. Throughout the four years, the ship gathered samples from all over the ocean floor. And this included samplers for rocks, sediment, and they also had nets for animals and creatures to capture. It also included winches to measure the depths. Um, the mm. Challenger traveled from England to South At- to the South Atlantic, then around the southern tip of Africa, through the southern Indian Ocean, and then it went down and crossed the Antarctic Circle, back up through New Zealand, and then to Australia. The Challenger then continued around the world and aimed north to the Hawaiian Islands, past, so past New Zealand on the other side of the yep, world. I'm following then south again around South America, through the Atlantic, up through, and then finally home in May 1876. So you can see how when they're coming up and around the South American, that's when they found the Mariana Trench. Damn. Yeah. <coughs> God. So this expedition started the discovery of the Marianas Trench, though they only recorded the depth at about five miles or eight kilometers using a weighted sounded rope. 
Obviously, this is very inaccurate, and it's not really a great way to measure the trench, but that's all they had now because we've never discovered something this deep or had the technology to do it. So another Challenger ship was created, the Challenger 2. It returned, and it surveyed the trench in 1951. They discovered the severe inaccuracy of the first measurement and then further mapped the Challenger deep using an echo sounder. On this trip, no humans descended to the trench. They only utilized equipment. In 1960, Swiss scientists Jacques Picard and U.S. Navy Lieutenant Don Walsh attempted to go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. <laughs> Good luck. They were in the vessel, call, the vessel called Triste, or Triste, a U.S. Navy-owned submersible vessel. In order to get to the depths they need, the scientists utilized 70 tons of gasoline to fill the 50-foot-long floats along the bottom of the sub. Because gasoline's louder than water... They utilized, they, I'm sorry, they utilized it to flood the air tanks, not their air, but the right. dedicated air tanks, to force the descent. So since it's lighter, it boo. Yeah. Also, as they descend into the, de into the depths, the gasoline compressed, decreasing right. the sub's buoyancy, which is their floatability, for those who don't know, causing the sub to actually start to accelerate downwards as it compressed. Oh, shit! Five hours later. They died. No. Five, no? no, they didn't. Not like, you know, like going to 60 miles an hour, but it caught like a slow acceleration right. as it compressed down. Yeah, but I just imagine like <clears throat> crunch and then they're dead. No. Because the buoyant forces down there are probably insane. Yeah. Well, it's only compressing the gasoline, not the hull. Oh. And, the, and then the gasoline is used as a weight. So the Triste touched down on the ocean floor. It hit it. At the ocean floor, temperatures are only, which is shocking to me, 34 to 39 degrees Fahrenheit or 1 to 4 degrees Celsius. Wow, that is surprising. Mm -hmm. Oh, geothermal probably. Uh, yes. And see, my first thought was it would be, it should be below freezing down there. But again, yeah, you're closer to the mantle, closer to the core. Right. I could see how. Um, the water pressure is 8 tons or 16,000 pounds of pressure per square inch. Fuck. This is equivalent that. to 1,000 times the standard atmospheric pressure at sea level. Yeah, crazy. Isn't there like a thing, <clears throat> like a disease that you get when you're under that much pressure? If you come up too rapidly, it's called the bends. Yeah, the bends. It's basically where nitrogen starts to boil right. your body. Right. And it boils you from the inside out if you go too quickly. You know, if you go very quick. Right. And that's if you're exposed to this pressures only. They're in a pressurized cabin. Oh, oh so like divers. Divers. Okay, gotcha. Yes. So if a diver comes up too quick that's untrained, too much nitrogen builds in their blood, and then it, it starts to attack the nervous system. But if it's too fast, way too fast, then again, it, it just literally boils you from the inside out. You know, someone did that, and then they were like, shit. Yeah, totally. In, in our history, someone boiled alive and we were uh, like, shit. I want... So the other day, I was listening to a story. It was about... It was about these four welders that were down. Yes. Did you listen to that too? It was your TikTok. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found it on TikTok and then I was like fact-checking. I guess I didn't put it in the episode. I should have, but I, was, I wasn't thinking. So these four welders went down deep to do some work. I don't think it was the underside of a hull. I can't remember exactly what their project was. But this is way back in the day when we didn't have the technology to reintroduce people to different pressures slowly, right. safely. So what they did was they were put in this cabin. Pressurized they cabin. This yeah. pressurized cabin. They dropped it down and they created this traversable vessel that attached to the insuction to the outside. 
and it kept the people at a at a pressurized normalcy essentially deep below the ocean so they could get in the they slept in the cabin they went into the vessel went out did what they needed to do and then came back in essentially <laughs> because it's such low pressures down there they whatever happened where one guy he went to lock in the cabin essentially or the vessel to the cabin he was on his way in but the guys above when they like depressurize the vessel and just like lock him in he didn't get the door shut in time right so, so both doors were open and one yeah one door was well one door was open enough to the outside to where it depressurized immediately and the guy closest to it completely imploded and then exploded everywhere they said bones and all he was just fl- a fleshy Fuck. mess i mean yeah that's like that's like pressure all over your body right quickly like all at rapid the same time, you explode yeah. so the guy next to it exploded <laughs> the rest of the guys bled out and then the nitrogen boiled and it boiled them alive from the inside so tragic and then the, there was one guy kind of like so two people were going one guy was at the door one guy was kind of walking away and then it depressurized so the two guys closest kind of exploded into a fleshy mess but the other two when they depressurized so rapidly were boiled from the inside out so so we never did that again that was really bad technology that we did i mean and it was the it was, it was okay above to... it wasn't the guy okay. locking the thing it's they didn't it was above when they um the crewmates essentially yeah. they unlocked whatever locking mechanism way too soon before they were secured and cleared in same thing would happen at the iss by the way yeah oh totally there's a there's a decompressurization zone and if both doors are open you're fucked i don't think it's you necessarily up there you don't get the bends like you do because it's not no you it's a different type of disease i don't even know if there is a thing the air would get sucked out of your lungs so quick right 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 right. vacuum yeah you would just die and I'm sure your blood would probably come out of your pores or something. Oh, prob- you probably explode, too, in just a different way. So, yeah. Essentially, nitrogen gets dissolved and it creates this air bubbles inside the body that can get heated up, basically from a decompression ascent. So, it's I never want to get the bends. So, you see a lot of these people that, like, go diving, like, on vacations, and they come up, and then they fly, and then they get an air bubble... It's just, they haven't depressurized long enough. They just left, you know, they packed up within 24 hours and went on the fly. So then they can get an air bubble. um, And it really shuts your body down. You get like the shakes, you get like neurological symptoms. You just almost like pass out and become unresponsive. It was actually a house episode and they're pretty accurate too. So, and the guy got the bends, he passed out. They couldn't figure out. They thought he was like seizing and dying. But in reality, he just had an arterial air bubble that had built up. He hadn't, his body did not take care of. So, and it had migrated. So crazy. Anyways, so back to the story, the good story. (laughs) Jacques and Lieutenant Don only spent 20 minutes down at the bottom before things started to go, you know, they were getting nervous. So then they went back up. Mm -hmm. They were not able to capture any photographs due to the silk cloud stirred up from their passage, which really sucks. At the bottom, Jacques believed that he visualized a flatfish stating that life is possible at the bottom of the trench. After later questioning, they discovered that the supposed flash flatfish was actually the form of a sea cucumber, a non-vertebrate, an invertebrate. Right. This theorized that due to the insane amount of pressure, that calcium structures cannot exist except in solution because they would dissolve because there's Ooh. too much pressure. Right. 
that does make sense. So if there's no bone structure, there's no fish, aka no flatfish. As of today, we have no idea if there are vertebrate animals at the bottom of the trench. It is up to the Deep Sea Challenger project to find out. All in all, going back, the Challenger 2's expedition discovered over 5,000 new species and covered over 71,000 nautical miles of ocean floor over their four-year expedition. Shit. So, what's the Deep Sea Challenger product? 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 Project? Their motto is, we know less about the ocean than what we, than what we know about the surface of Mars, which I believe that's true. I would say that's accurate. Um, they are dedicated to understanding the ocean's vast range of biological and geological phenomena. Their engineers have crafted advanced technology to withstand the pressures of the deep, including samplers, cameras, videos, etc. Damn. Yeah. So they're basically, they're a project dedicated to discovering, you know, the Mariana Trench. So, yeah. And I definitely, like, the surface of Mars, we've had, like, rovers and all sorts of other crazy shit up there taking samples free-floating around. Totally believe it. Less, you know, pure visibility. Right. Versus down there, nah. I was just thinking if Mars had a, a vast ocean, like if it did. Does it doesn't? Has no ocean on it, or it does? Wait, it used to, definitely. It doesn't now. No, it's too hot. Oh, okay. On yeah. Mars, it yeah. it may have a under. I can't remember what they call it, but it's a ocean under the surface. Okay. Like in areas. Like under the crust. Yeah. Oh, okay. There might. Yeah, be. I've heard of that. I think I've heard of that actually. Yeah. But anyway, um, I was thinking if they did have like a vast ocean, that that would be the most undiscovered place in the universe. Totally. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, that would be. Yes. So on March 26, 2012, the third and only or the third and last person, James Cameron pirate, piloted the deep sea challenger pirated. pirated. <laughs> he kind of did pirate it because he paid his way into this shit. So he pirated. Oh, that's true. He did. The deep sea challenger to the bottom of the ocean for several hours to collect samples and document his experience in 3D. The vessel he used. Of course he did it for film. Of course he did. The deep sea challenger, so the vessel, is 24 feet long in a vertical orientation. Comparable to like a vertical torpedo. The windows are nine and a half inches thick. When he reached the bottom. (laughs) Right. Very thick. When he reached the bottom, he recorded his dive at a record-setting 35,787 feet, the deepest for a human to ever go. He described the bottom of the ocean as being very lunar. He had no expectations of profusion of life, like you might see at the bottom of a hydrothermal vent community. They took samples from the bottom and discovered 68 new species of bacteria. They also harvested some small invert invertebrates. So that's where COVID came from. No, it came from a lab. Kristen. After about... <laughs> tell me I'm wrong. After about three hours, camera reported a couple of batteries were dangerously low. The compass was glitching and his sonar had completely died. Oh, shit. He also had lost two thirds of his starboard thrusters. And so he's like, all right, we're... Shit's starting to shut down. It's time to go. He flipped the switch to release two 536-pound weights on each side to allow the ship to rise. And one and a half hours later, the sub breached the surface. So it took him an hour and a half to float up to the top. That's a long float up. That's crazy. Yeah. This was the only, or this is the only manned trip since the tree stay touched down. And again, he's the last person to go down there. Don't do that. So everyone wants to know, what life do we have down there? Obviously, 
That's the big question. Is it only bacteria? <clears throat> right. So, there have been shrimp-like amphipods harvested from the bottom in the mud. <laughs> Holothurians, or the sea cucumber-like creatures, were also discovered. While exploring, I'm sorry, exploring with a lander, scientists discovered what was to be basically thriving microbial community clinging to the rocks. They named it the bearded rocks of the Serena Deep. Hmm. In comparison to the other organisms that live off of discarded dead organisms and debris, these bacteria feed off the chemical production of the seafloor reacting with the water. They, they kind of look like green fuzzy mats. That's why they call it the beards, bearded um. rocks of the Serena. Due to the conditions, it is hypothesized that similar types of life can be found in the solar system, such as on Jupiter's moon Europa or Saturn's moon and, oh God, Enceladas. Yes. <laughs> is that it? Yeah, Enceladas. Shit. That sounds like Enceladas. You mean Enchilada? <laughs> Enceladas. Enceladas. It does sound like Enceladas. Yeah. El Salad. <laughs> this discovery was more than likely the deepest. Oh, wait. No, I think you're wrong. Can, can you spell it? E-N-C-E-L-A-D-U-S. I think it's Enceladus. Enceladus. Yeah. That makes way more fucking sense. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome. Enchiladas. <laughs> Enceladus, yeah. Enceladus, yeah. Enceladus. Um, this discovery is more than likely the deepest chemosynthetic community ever recorded. An mm. organism that is a chemosynthesizer basically derives energy from carbon-containing chemicals. Yes, that thing. Carbon dioxide or methane without sunlight. Fucking crazy. Yes. Because like crazy. literally on other planets, it's like, well, if there's an atmosphere, sunlight and oxygen, there's no life. It's like, that's not true. It's not true. There are organisms in our own planet that don't need that shit. Correct. Chemosynthesizers. They take these carbon molecules and they oxidize them, which for, so cool. if you haven't taken chem, that means they lose their electrons and they use um, inorganic materials such as hydrogen gas, hydrogen sulfide, or ferrous irons. I'm sorry, uh, ferrous ions to create organic matter without sunlight itself. Basically, no oxygen. Right. For those who don't know, photosynthesis is the utilization of sunlight to create ATP or glucose, which is our energy sources in our bodies. You take six carbon dioxides and six water molecules, add sunlight and chlorophyll, and then you get glucose and six O2 molecules. These, the building blocks of life. Right. These chemosynthesizers do not do that. That's why this is so crazy. Yeah. Side note, so when they were down getting that fuzzy sample, that mat, they didn't take a sample of it. Fuckers. I know. What well, the, why the fuck would they do that? Well, it might die the second you take it out of that environment. I don't know. I don't know. You could try. You could try and keep it pressurized, but <clears throat> we have samples of other organisms, obviously, so oh. I don't know. During Cameron's drop, they actually put a phone booth-sized lander in the Serena Deep. Um, the the Serena Deep is actually very seismically active and predicted to be potentially volcanically active, too. Geothermal, so I'm telling you. Right. This would mean more <laughs> vents, more nutrients, more ocean currents, and more life. Yes. It's fucking crazy that, like, you introduce, like, carbon monoxide and, like, destruction, mm -hmm. and it, like, life flourishes in it. Because, crazy. Because, like, yeah, crazy. it's just crazy. Down in deep caves where rich rocks meet seawater, serpentinization occurs. This is a transformative process where iron, magnesium, and sil silicate or silicate rich rocks are heated, squeezed, and then the molecular structure is changed to a serpent. Serp what have I just said? Serpentinized. Serpent. Serp serpent. 
serpentinite, serpentinite, whatever it is. Huh. It's a very interesting term. I've never heard of this term before. Yeah. From the changes, a little bit of heat is released in, um, with some methane and, and hydrogen, essentially, that can feed the microorganisms. Oh, well, okay. That's basically the process in which they, ha- which they extract their food. Right. Sorry, that was a dumbass. I could not. I don't know why. What? Serpentinization. Serpent, serpentinite. That was it. Serpentinite. That's it. Serpentinite. Cool. There you go. That's so crazy. First bacteria to be collected from the trench is the Pseudomonas bathycetes. And it was isolated from the Kaiko. <laughs> Literally called Kaiko. Side note, in 1995, the Kaiko descended the trench for data collection. It's a remotely operated vehicle or rove, or rover, rove. if you will, utilized for deep sea surveying. It has collected organisms and has also discovered the Hirondel, the Hirondelia gigas. Another benthic, meaning coming from the bottom of water, organized organism discovered from the trench. Huh. Benthic organism. In a lab, most of the organisms can only grow under high-pressure environments. See, told you. That's why they didn't take a sample. Interestingly enough, the Pseudomonas extraction was not evident to adapt to deep-sea life. It was able to grow in higher temperatures... Closer to 25 degrees Celsius or 77 degrees Fahrenheit and at normal atmospheric pressures. So it's not necessarily true. It's just a wide range of adaptability. Ah, okay. As we already know, there's a ton of volcanic activity underwater. Under, um, Under average ocean pressures of one and a half miles below sea level, not the depth of the trenches, these vents are homes to tons of life. We're going to talk about kind of like the whole ecosystem process of yes. life around the vents. Yes. So, two worms, crabs, mussels, zoarsic, zoarsid fish, and chemolithotrophic bacteria surround them. <laughs> Jesus. I killed it. <laughs> Chemolithotrophs are species that utilize sulfur in order to oxidize carbon um, dioxide structures for energy. They are surviving in complete darkness and are typically blind. Octopus and deep-sea predators love to feed off these natural sources around the vents. Mm-hmm. So vent ecosystems are extremely complex. Um, and we really don't know a lot about them. We have to like heavily study basically the whole area. One of the most heavily studied areas that we've done recently was called Nine North. <laughs> really ingenious. Located nine degrees north no on the eastern Pacific Ocean. <laughs> this area has also undergone recent eruptions, making it a great place to study vents. Um, I like that. I said I like that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, with the recent eruptions, it's a great area to study basically the changes in the growth over time. Of these vent, basically, ecosystems. Simply put, when an underwater vent erupts lava, it wipes the surface of the rock completely, essentially where no life can live, like a clean slate. Right. Cold seawater seeps into the cracks and superheats to mix with the minerals below. The seawater will continue to get heated as it sinks lower and then actually becomes more buoyant. So it drops down in, gets warmer, becomes more buoyant, and starts to rise to the surface. But in this rising process, in this superheating process, it mixes with chemicals such as hydrogen sulfide, remnants from the seawater in this rocky slurry. Right. Then, because it's superheated, pressurized from the core, 
The water can shoot out like an underwater geyser or leak out more passively in a diffusive, um, diffusive flow spilling onto the ocean floor. Oh, cool. This area of warm, diffuse flow, not the cold seawater, and not the high-pressure water, that's the best environment for this underwater life. So that's kind of how that's, that really nice area is created. Hmm. The diffuse flow is not only gathers chemical byproducts, but bacteria that have actually been surviving between the rock structures and the cracks deep below the surface in the mantle. And once these or these organisms essentially reach the ocean floor, this is when they start to colonize. The colonizing process begins days after the eruption and then lasts as long as the vents are essentially active because they need that warmth. These are single-celled chemosynthesizers. And essentially over time, they create this slime or this biofilm mat when they reprodu reproduce against, again and colonize. Disgusting. It is kind of gross. <laughs> it allows for a lot of diversification of the bacteria, though, and it can create a food source for the variety of the organisms or a variety of organisms because a lot of um, things feed off of this biomat and film. Right. Such as, like, crabs, worms, protists, um, crustaceans, shit it's like that. The circle of life. <laughs> <laughs> right? Kind of. That's what I'm, like, going off for. It's, like, a really yeah. tight-knit thing. Um, these vent organisms also live in symbiosis with the bacteria. So, again, the crabs, the worms, and stuff. There's two worms who reside around the vent. They have no mouth or stomach. Instead, they use special organs to safe house millions of symbiotic bacteria. The worm's blood supplies the bacteria in their gut with chemicals from the vent fluid. In return, they create glucose for the worm to consume. It takes a few months for a small tube worm to appear near a vent, and after a few years, they actually get replaced with a larger tube worm. So this is how we can tell the age of oh, these vents. By the size of the worms. Right. Shellfish, mussels, clams also gather around the vents and cracks in the floor. The bacteria live in the gills, and they use chemosynthesis to produce glucose that the shellfish can also utilize as food. As the vent ecosystem expands, the more likely predators will be attracted, such as octopus and zoarchids, which are two-foot-long fish that consume anything from two worms to crabs. Sea dandelions, which are kind of wandering scavengers, are typically the, to, um, the last organism to arrive in the vent ecosystem itself. Hmm. They also mean... Um, that the ecosystem around the vent is dying. I was just going to say, it means it's it's the end. Right, and they're <laughs> preying on essentially dead bodies, <clears throat> since they're scavengers. They're zombies. Right, right. Oh, or, I guess, maybe not zombies, but... Right. So basically, when, all the or when any organism dies, the body's consumed and it's recycled through the various processes, and other things can use them. So green sulfur bacteria are extremely unique among, among the hydrothermal vents. They require both chemical energy from the hydrogen sulfide and light energy. They're able to harvest light at such a low emittance, they can use the light from the weaker radioactive glow from the geothermally heated rock below. Shit. Like tiny little photons of light from heat. That's kind of nuts. Right. Essentially, the bacteria along vents are either heat-loving, salt-loving, sulfur-loving, or a combination of all, or extremophiles. Is the term. Extremophile. Mm-hmm. Nice. Most heat-loving bacteria continue to get their energy from hydrogen gas and produce hydrogen sulfide, which is toxic to animals and humans. Right. 
These bacteria have adapted to survive under extreme conditions and basically survive in what we thought was the unsurvivable. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the end of the vent ecosystem, per se. Right. But it's really, I thought there would be more, but it all makes really good sense. You know, what's down there. Um, I get why. I was hoping for, like, these fucking alien-sucking life bullshit things that survive all crazy, but... Right. Yeah. So, I wanted to talk about... <clears throat> so, I wanted to talk about some uncommon deep-sea creatures that are residing below. We talk... Everyone talks about, oh, like, the anglerfish and the right. giant octopus. Yeah. But I pick three that aren't really as known. We've seen Finding Nemo. We know what an anglerfish is. I'm, I'm so... Everyone's like, the anglerfish... No shit. <laughs> so, let's talk about something, a couple different ones that are different that are kind of scary as hell. Cool. Um... And where they reside, etc. So the first one is called the gulper eel. I think I've heard of this. It's dark brown, dark green, about three to six feet in length. Its habitat is essentially worldwide. It has no preference on where it lives. And it likes to survive between 5,000 and uh, 4,000 feet deep. Jesus. It has an enormous mouth with a very loosely hinged jaw. It can swallow animals larger than itself by gulping them into the pouch in its jaw, like a similar to like a huge pelican. Right. But also the stomach expands and stretches to accommodate its meal. It has very tiny pectoral fins and very small eyes, which is extremely unusual for deep sea creatures whose eyes tend to be much larger um, from the dark. The mid-range creatures, not like the deep, deep sea ones, they don't typically have eyes, but the mid-range ones have larger eyes to gather more light. Right. So there's a fine line between, yeah. you know, development in them. Maybe it's like semi-blind then. <clears throat> they detect small traces of light, but they don't form actual images on their retinas. Yeah, sure, so they can't. Right. They have long whip-like tails to propel them through the water, but when they have been accidentally caught by sea fishermen, it's so long and thin, the tail can actually be found in knots. Like oh. it ties around itself. Shit. It also contains the tail, a photophore, which is a light-producing organ on, basically for luring prey. It glows mm. pink and can give off red flashes. What? Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. When prey comes close, obviously, it, it lures it into a thing, lunges, grabs it, snaps it up for digestion. Um, what we've documented, which is very little, is that the eel prefers small crustaceans and has this evolution-sized jaw for when food is scarce or minimal. When they're basically starving, then they can utilize it. Right. So that's it on that one. Okay. The next one, the deep sea hatchet fish. It's a green to grayish silver specimen, about four inches long, and it lives at depths anywhere from 400 to 4,500 feet. There's about 45 species of hatchet fish and live all over the world. They're named for their thin body shape that resembles the head of a hatchet, obviously. Same. Okay. <laughs> the, <laughs> the largest of the hatchet fish is the giant hatchet fish, and it grows up to six inches in length. Their eyes are tubular, and they point upwards. Oh, shit. To search for food falling above. Oh, that's only two inches larger, but it's called the giant one. I know. <laughs> the large one. Their eyes are very sensitive to light and shadows for hunting, but again, they can't produce full images. They also possess bioluminescence, photophores that run along the lower length of their bodies. This is really cool. 
it gives them a protection mechanism as it seems the fish will blend in with the light as they're floating up and over things. So if you ah. look up, they illuminate it around them to make it right. seem like they're continuous light. Right. And they also have the control to, to um, the strength, to control the strength of the light. So it can be way stronger or way, you know, less depending on the weather. That's crazy. So they hunt basically looking up for things falling, but they also protect themselves from the bottom by changing the strength of the light that they give off. That's crazy. That's called counter-illumination. Dude, they're um, like stealth bombers. Right, with adjustable intensity. <laughs> That's fucking nuts. Super cool. There's not a, Again, there's not a lot known about hatchet fish, but they seem to have very short lifespans, and they prey on shrimp, fish, and plankton. Okay, lastly, the nastily. Oh, gross. There's the Atlantic hagfish or the slime eel. Yeah, yes. You've heard of the I slime? I love the slime eel. Ew. It's gross. It's gross, and the way it eats is crazy. Yeah. Um, they range from 16 to 32 inches in length and live all around the world. It has an eel-like body, hence the name, but it's not truly an eel. It is pinkish gray, and it has no scales. They survive in depths up to 4,000 feet. It's very kind of unusual as it secretes a very sticky slime from glands all over its body. At any one time, it can produce enough slime to fill a gallon just in itself. I knew that. There's actually some videos on YouTube of people invoking them or evoking, whatever. Getting them to... Provoking to them? Do, provo thank you, Jesus. Provoking them. Getting them to do it, and it's fucking gross I'm going to have to look it up. It's yeah. like... <laughs> they just like turn yeah. into slugs. It's a lot. It's so gross. And they're very commonly picked up by fishermen because they're, again, at any, right. de any depths down to 4,000 right, feet. Right. Um, they sneeze when their nostrils fill with slime. They're like one of the few... Like, quote-unquote, sneeze. They eject air out to like clear their face from the slime. Same. The slime is also unique. You probably didn't... Did you know, like, what it's composed of? It actually has fibers in it to reinforce it, kind of like carbon fiber, to make it very strong. Oh, I didn't know that. And difficult to remove. <clears throat> um, and it's used to protect itself from predators. Right. They also... When they sleep, they create this little slime ball. Oh. And they can just, like... Nothing can get in at them. They're just protected in their own shit. Slime. Their own slime. Also, for predators, if it gets close enough, it will fill their gills of the predator with slime and essentially suffocates, suffocate them? suffocates the fish. What the fuck? Dude. Bad. That's gross. <laughs> so this, and it's also extremely unique because it has the ability to clean its body of the slime. It ties itself into a knot and oh, it and works it... that knot <laughs> down its own body, and it sloughs off the slime as it goes. Oh, that's so gross. <laughs> it seems very primitive in nature from what we know about studying it. Right. There's no vertebra, only a partial skull, and very thick barbs on the end of its mouth. The eyes are very poorly developed, and they utilize smell and touch to find food in the darkness. Jesus. But the way it feeds is absolutely monstrous. It feeds by attaching itself to a passing fish with its barbs, and then it hooks into its skin. Then it starts to burrow and bore its way through the body of the fish. Oh, God. Once it's inside the fish, it starts consuming it from the inside out until the fish dies 
drops, and then it passes on. That's parasitic as fuck. How is this like a animal? It's a fish. Right. It has... It does this through a rasping tongue. Do you know what a rasp is? Uh, like a barbed kind of. No. Do you know what do you know what a farrier is with the horse? The people that clean horses' hooves. Yes. Um, they have these long. They look like files, but they're extremely sharp, and they right. take off a lot of skin. Those files are actually called rasps. Oh. So they basically like grate away at the body until they get in, and they grate away the inside and consume it, and then. Like, it's not just, like, a chomp. It's, like, a, sh- a scraping. God. It's gross. Fuck. That's, that's horrifying. It is horrifying. So, d- stay the fuck away from those. Again, fishermen <laughs> pull them up all the time, and they're like, ugh. Yeah, put a damper on your day. Right. So, overall, in this whole episode, the Mariana Trench is obviously very deep, but it's still, at the end of the day, ocean bottom. It's not, like, a different ocean bottom. It's just a deeper ocean bottom. From the microbes' point of view, it's probably a great place to essentially live and habitat, create a habitat. We just need to increase, basically, our technology to find and explore it a lot better. Why can't we just stick a fucking light down there? I don't, I I wouldn't travel far. And it has to withstand the pressures. Oh. You know, the sonar was dying on, um, the triste. The triste. The triste. Probably, it's probably just triste. Hmm. But, yeah, that is... It on the Mariana or Mariana's Trench. Now you know. Now you know. It was interesting. I was I knew pleasant. almost nothing about it, so. And we, unfortunately, this episode kind of is boo-boo because we don't, still don't know a lot about it. We know a little bit of the depth. We know a little bit of other things, but not, mm-hmm. not a lot. Not the full story. Right, not the full story, but again, the Challenger Deep is, there's got to be something down there. We need to go down. Only three people have it's done. The Kraken. Well, only three people have been down there. Starman's field trip. We have like probes and shit. I would. You couldn't pay me enough money to go down there. No, you don't fuck with the ocean. That's like my life motto. <laughs> Literally, you don't fuck with the ocean. That's probably why it's unexplored. Because I'm not the only one thinking like, oh, let's go into the deepest trench in the fucking world. I do want to see those uh, algae that are <laughs> when you touch them, they like illuminate. It's in, like, that, certain warm-body oceans. Isn't that at the surface, though? Like, on beaches? Yeah. yeah. Beaches, or if you're, like, in a boat, you They're can, They're like... bioluminescence? Yes. Cool. That was, I was gonna do Oh, that. yeah, because you, like, drag your legs through and it lights up? Yeah. They're, that's bacteria, I think. No, it's... In it's, the water. It's algae. Is it? Yeah. I thought it was bacteria in the water. No, it, well, it's algae, but it's, like, when you move it, it they, like... It's stimulated yeah, somehow. Yeah, stimulated, yeah. Mm. Anyway. Cool. cool. All right. Thanks for listening. Thank you. If you have any suggestions on other episodes we should do, let, let us, us know. know. It's uh, starmanspodcast at gmail.com. Whoa, shit. At Stroke or uh, <laughs> or our Instagram, where you will find a pretty little link. At Starman's Podcast. Um, yes, Instagram at Starman's Podcast. <laughs> find a link. Butchering all of this. That yeah, you'll find a link. goes to our beacon and our merch. Our merch. And our, our TikTok. And Check t- it all out. TikTok. If you want to be involved in this community Please. And, uh, and everything. Suggest a topic. Why not? Yeah. Maybe we'll do it. Maybe we won't. We leave it up to us. As long as it's not dumb. And yeah. We'll do it. <laughs> or say hi to us. We've got some special episodes coming up. Yes. The teaser for the next episode. is, Which is like crazy. I'll, we'll just say it's a fun interview with a very famous. Very cool person. Cool. Dope. Very cool background. 
very very cool dude yes i'm pumped we're super excited all right guys we love you kind of see you next time (laughs) Bye. bye lava it wipes the surface <sighs> fuck me no <laughs> i can't talk today that's like the 18th stutter i have done